the title for this series comes right out of the first text that we're going to look at in the Old Testament. It comes from the pages of 1 King 18. Now, one of the most passionate and gutsy prophets in all the, all the Bible, really, is shaking his head in disbelief as the king and queen of the people of Israel, like this is God's chosen people, and a majority of all the people living in Israel in those days, they had actually shifted their worship from the true God to starting to worship a God from a, like a neighboring country. And this God's name was Baal. Now, part of the appeal of Baal is that he claimed to have powers over weather conditions, and Israel was in the middle of this horrible multi-year drought. So they thought maybe they could get a little favor from this God, and, you know, change the weather situation that they're dealing with. But uh, Baal's a kind of a dicey form of worship. It involves child sacrifices, if you can believe it. I mean, child sacrifices. It, it also involved temple prostitution, uh, often involving little girls at ages that would make you very, very uncomfortable. It also involved self-mutilation to get the attention of the gods and then some other certifiably weird worship practices. So Elijah, the prophet we're talking about here, he's beside himself with frustration, and he feels like he has to do something to try to turn people's hearts back to the true God. Now, some of you uh, avid Bible readers, you'll already remember, Elijah organizes this winner-take-all showdown of the gods on top of a nearby mountain. And this contest of the deities, it's promoted all over Israel. Like, this is like the World Series, the World Cup, the, the Super Bowl, all like rolled into one. No one is going to miss this event. So the day finally arrives, and a massive number of people show up, including the king and queen, the entire priesthood of Baal, 450 of them, all decked out in their religious gowns. And then there's this one prophet representing the God of Israel. How do you like his odds? This one guy, as far as we know, he's in street clothes. It's Elijah, the prophet we're discussing. So Elijah announces how this contest is going to go. Here's his opening line from 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, Yahweh, that is, follow him. Stop playing around with this other God. If he's a true God, just like follow him. But if Baal is God, if he proves he's the real deal today, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So really, Elijah is saying something is going to be decided today. Today. Important phrase for you this morning because you, you might indeed be the one still kind of wavering as the people of, of Israel did. Kind of wavering between playing with God but still wanting to run your own life or to find something from somewhere else. Elijah is saying by nightfall, uh, we're going we're gonna to know who the true God is. And all you want to do is you're going to want to follow him. And today is that day. So next, Elijah explains the rules. Two altars are going to be built. An animal will be killed and laid on each of the altar. Then prayers will be prayed to Baal and to God by their respective priests and prophets. Now. Here's the deal. Scripture writes it this way, 1 Kings 18, 24. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. He wins the contest. And all the people agreed. They agreed that this was a pretty fair contest. Pretty tough to rig and prearrange like a fire strike from heaven. So they all shake on the deal. 
And then Elijah politely says to the Baal guys, you go first. So let's let the Bible describe the play-by-play -play here. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 26. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbled around the altar they made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. He, he, like, he like starts the head games. He, he can't resist. It's like some good old-fashioned trash talking that he's going to do. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep or needs to be awakened. And, and this like trash talk caused the prophets of Baal to, to kick it up a notch. So they shouted louder. And listen to this. Following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. That was important to the people of Israel. But still there was no sound, no reply, no response. And then time was up. Nothing. They'd given it their best shot. They were hoarse from screaming and shouting. They're bleeding in an attempt to get their God to listen to them. Now it's Elijah's turn. Like no pressure, right? 450 to 1. Uh, probably multitudes of people saying, hey, you created this contest, so you know you put the big dare out there. Let's see some action now, Elijah. Show us what you've got. If 450 can't do it, there's no way one's going to do it, right? So it's showtime. Elijah knows it. The first thing he does is quite interesting, though. He asks the people to gather in close as possible because he's going to do some stuff, and he's going to kind of narrate by his actions what's going to happen. So they all move in and quiet down. Then Elijah grabs 12 stones to build his altar. 12 stones, of course, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he, as he puts one stone in place, and then he grabs a second stone and starts putting it into place. It's as if he's saying to the people who are now close by, Surely, surely you remember the 12 tribes of Israel. Surely you remember that God made a loving commitment to Israel. He said that he would love us as a people and that if we would return that love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that not only would he bless our people, but someday he would bless the whole world through his people. Surely you remember the love of God and the promises of God and that he keeps his promise. Then he takes stone two and three, and as they watch, uh, they're being reminded of the 12 tribes of Israel and how faithful God has been to them. And surely they would remember that God is a, a great God of love to them. God brought them out of the land of Egypt where they were slaves. He gave them this promised land. And now, now you're actually thinking of turning away from this loving, promise-making, promise-keeping, faithful God to worship this thing, this Baal? who never told you he loved you. He never made a commitment to you. He never made a covenant and kept it. He's never been faithful to you. You can't even get him to answer you. Why are you doing this? The true God would never treat you this way because his defining characteristics, it's holy and loving. I hope all of you know that most people you run into at work or school every day, they have a love deficit inside of them that is huge. I hope you realize that when people do like self-destructive forms of behavior, what drives a lot of that is the starvation of love. 
and they don't know what to do with that hole. And so they, they try to do all sorts of stuff to try to make, make up for the deficit, make it go away somehow, at least a little bit. Those of us who have had our love deficit filled by the love of God, by what God pours into us in our lives every day, listen, we have this amazing privilege of saying to friends and family, the God I wish you knew loves you more deeply than you've ever been loved by anybody. The simple but true message that we get to share with anyone who will listen to us is that the true God, the creator God, loves people no matter who they are, where they've been, not matter how deep a hole they've dug for themselves, his love is infinite. It's unconditional. It's powerful. It's personal. And it's constant. We get to tell people that because that is the God we wish they knew. I hope you're spreading that news of God's love. I hope you'll use this series leading up to Easter as a tool to have your friends and family hear about the love of God. So back to the story at Mount Carmel when Elijah finishes building his altar with these 12 stones. Now he kills an innocent animal and he lays it on top of the altar. Now that would be like a pretty rough thing for us to watch, but for the Israelite, the idea of sacrificing innocent excuse me, animals on altars had been a regular part of their worship practice for like hundreds and hundreds of years. They knew exactly what it meant, that their wrongdoing and sin was such a serious affront to a holy God that something or someone had to die to atone for the sin. They, they had been taught well. A holy God cannot wink at wrongdoing. Something or someone must atone and make that wrongdoing right. So they were taught to bring a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would atone for their sins, and that was all foreshadowing the day that there would be like this ultimate atoning sacrifice that God would provide that would take away the sins of the world once and for all. If you catch nothing else from what I'm saying today, catch the irony on the mountaintop here. As Elijah is laying this innocent animal on the altar, He's literally foreshadowing the atoning death of Jesus Christ. He's looking right at his fellow Israelite friends. And again, it's, it's as if he's saying, really, guys, you are going to worship Baal who asked you to take your precious firstborn or son or daughter and throw that newborn child into the fire? You're going to shift your focus and sacrifice to the, that God when the true God gives his only son and offers him as an atoning sacrifice to set you free from your sin because he loves you. Now, they wouldn't understand all that at this point in history, but it's as if Elijah is foreshadowing this, that this Baal God demands your child as a sacrifice for his weird needs, and the other God provides you his child as an atoning sacrifice that you so desperately need. It's amazing. To this day, the average person walking the streets anywhere, the triad's no different, believes deep down that if they're going to start and begin a relationship with God, they'd have to sacrifice something. Something would have to be given up or sacrificed. They know that on some deep level that they're out of sync with a holy God. So people walk around and say, you know, if I was ever going to get fired up about beginning a relationship with God, I'd have to sacrifice something. Something in my life would have to go. And as Elijah's foreshadowing on the mountain that day, 
the huge sacrifice that makes a relationship with God possible has already been made by God himself through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, his son, which gives us this, this us all, this opportunity to say to neighbors and colleagues and friends and family, you can come to God. The sacrifice has already been made. You don't have to bring anything. You can come to God. Here's the big line. Just as you are. Some of those powerful words you can say to somebody who has a love deficit, who thinks they have to fly straighter, bring some huge sacrifice, make some commitment they know they can't keep. You say, the sacrifice has already been made. You can come without one. You can come just as you are. One of the most powerful experiences of my life was in attending an event that Billy Graham put on in Anaheim, California, big stadium where the Angels play baseball, tens of thousands of people there. I had never been to one of his events. I sat in the upper deck, and when he was done giving the message, and it was a solid message, but I literally thought, eh, I've heard better. Uh, <laughs> but what do I know? Um, no, really, I, I literally was thinking that. So when he was done, he, he said, if any of you would like to turn from your past, and receive the sacrifice that God has made available to you through Jesus Christ, leave your seat and come down to the infield. And I'm literally, like, I'm not lying here, all right? I thought it was okay message, right? But I'm literally thinking, no one's going to come. No one's coming. I mean, like this punk, cocky college kid thinking this. And then some of you remember what song the choir led by George Beverly Shea sang at that point for like the past 50 years. Same song, all over the world. Just as I am. Every time Billy Graham would stop and would say, can you come? The choir would launch in and they would sing, just as I am without one plea. In other words, I got nothing. I got nothing in my hands. There's no way I can impress a God who I've offended just as I am, without one plea, but that your sacrifice has already been made for me and that you invite me now to come, to come just as I am? How does that first verse end? O Lamb of God, I come, I come. If you'll take me as I am, if the sacrifice has already been made and if, you, if your love is so infinitely powerful that you would receive me as I am, then O Lamb of God, I come. And that night, kid you not, people by the hundreds came down and filled that infield. It's powerful, folks, to turn to your friends and say, if you ever want to begin a relationship with God, don't start making wild commitments that you can't keep on your own. Don't start thinking you got to clean yourself up and that's what makes it possible to come. The good news is that the sacrifice that you think you have to make has already been made for you through Jesus Christ. So you can come as you are. Come as you are. So back to Mount Carmel. What Elijah does next will take the breath away from everyone in the crowd. Check out this uh, scripture in the first Kings, same chapter 18 now in verse 33. Then he says, feel four large jars of water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done that, he said, do the same thing again. And when they had finished, he said, now do it a third time. 
So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, do you have any idea what he's doing here? I mean, why is he swamping the altar and the sacrifice with water? Think about it. In just a moment or two from now, Elijah's he's going to pray. That was part of the deal, part of the contest. He's going to say a prayer to a true God in front of the people who are now gathered in close. And he's going to do it in a conversational way. It, he's not going to shout or scream or perspire like the prophets of Baal. He's not going to dance or shake. He's not going to mutilate his arms and legs as was their custom. Elijah is going to pray a prayer to the true God that is, get this, a normal voice at a normal volume using normal words that normal people use in everyday conversation. Why? Because that's the way a true God prefers it. That's, that's the way he prefers it. You don't have to psych yourself up. You don't have to slash yourself. Remember when Jesus was teaching how to pray to the Father, he said in Matthew 6, don't become someone you're not when you're going to talk to God. Don't try to sound religious. Don't string together goofy phrases. Just be yourself and talk to get this, the God who is already listening. We get to tell our friends, hey, anytime you want to begin a relationship with God and you want to speak with him for the first time, you don't have to change your clothes. You don't have to drive to the cathedral. You don't have to light a candle or do an ancient chant. Just open up your mouth in a conversational way and start talking to the God who's already listening. That's good news to people, isn't it? Just talk to a God who's already listening. Now back to the mountain top one last time and then and then we'll be done. So the altar is built, the animal is laid on top, everything's been drenched from top to bottom three times. It's drenched so that if fire from heaven should come down, uh, everyone would know that God has limitless power. No one's gonna be able to say, hey, Elijah had a pack of matches under his robe, or no one's gonna say, hey, uh, the cow kicked over the lantern. Uh, if I don't know if such a thing would happen in that context. I don't know. Elijah drenches the entire altar so that everyone would have to admit from that day forward that the true God of Israel did the impossible. Limitless power. So here comes Elijah's conversational prayer we just talked about. At the usual time of offering, the evening sacrifice. Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. So these people will know that you are the true God. That's what it's all about. It's not into fire shows just for the sake of wowing a crowd. Just want people to know that you are the true God. Get them off this bail kick. And God answers. Verse 38. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones. You know, it takes 3,000 degrees of heat to burn a piece of stone. I learned that this week. And the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. So guess what happens when the people see limitless power of God in action? Verse 39. And when all the people saw this, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Uh, so the knee-jerk response 
of witnessing the limitless power of God is to fall on your face and confess the truth about what is, that the Lord, he is God. Now, as I wrap things up, some, sometimes when my cynical friends ask me, why doesn't God put on a more jaw-dropping displays of power any, anymore these days? They say, like, he did all that cool stuff in former days. Why isn't he doing the fire from heaven stuff much today? And my simple answer to them is just to say, hey, why don't you come to my church? Because I actually believe the greatest manifestation of the limitless power of God for our culture is not in lightning strikes, but rather it is in the loving transformation of a human heart. It's in changing a hateful man into a loving man. It's in taking a greedy person and making them generous. It, it's, it's in taking somebody prejudiced and making them love all people. It's to take this bitter person and to bring them joy. It's to take a person who's far from God and transform the heart into a heart that loves God. Those things to me are the jaw-dropping manifestations of God's limitless power. So if people want to say, uh, if people say they want to see some stuff, I say, look at you. Look at you out there, uh, this congregation, because your hearts are evidence of God's power and transformational ability at work. Folks, during this series, I would like to introduce many of you to the God I wish you knew. Not this distant, angry, distorted God you've heard about. Not this one who like gets his kicks out of judging people. I'd like to introduce to some of you, and I'd like to reintroduce to others of you, to a God you might have gotten fuzzy about. And I think that if you'll come along for this ride, you're going to be rocked afresh by this amazing God who has the power to save, the power to forgive, and the power to mend whatever is broken in your life. The, the power to overcome anything that has a strangle grip on you. The power to set you free from a past that you haven't been able to let go of. And the power to help you reconcile with somebody you've been at odds with. And all of this comes from this invitation from God to come just as you are. I want to invite you to do that. Just as I experienced those many years ago at a, at a stadium in Anaheim. You may be thinking as I did that day, you may be thinking today, eh, sermon was okay, I've heard better. But the invitation is directly from the true God who loves you. As a praise team leads us, if there's anything you need to bring to God, a God who loves you, I want to invite you to step out of your seat, to come down to these stairs that we call our altar, to lay it down and speak to him in a conversational way about what's going on. Because that's how he prefers it. And as you come, I've asked the praise team to lead us, just as I experienced that night, to lead us in singing, just as I am, without one plea. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The God I wish you knew receives you just as you are. Won't you come?